Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. In the 2008 HBO miniseries John Adams, a show based on David McCullough's book by that same title, there's a scene just after the delegates to the Continental Congress adopt the Declaration of Independence. In it, a man stands outside of Independence Hall reading the Declaration for the first time. And then the scene moves to John Adams' family, his sick daughter and his wife Abigail and their other children, taking turns reading the Declaration to each other. When... In the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident and that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain un... What's that word there? Unalienable. With certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is in the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British Crown. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Bless you. God save our American states! God save our American states! It's a moving scene, but it leaves out an important part of the Declaration, the actual charges against the king. And it screens from view, at least at that moment, half a million people who were enslaved in Britain's North American colonies, even as those colonists declared the natural right of all people to be free. In 1776, the population of the North American colonies was about 2.5 million. 20% of the total population was enslaved, but enslaved people made up about 60% of the population in South Carolina, 40% in Virginia. 
Almost all of those who were enslaved were of African descent, and society was marked by widespread racism and racial prejudice that developed, at least in part, to justify the race-based system of chattel slavery that grew up in Britain's colonial empire. And so this was the case, the hard reality on the ground, when the colonists declared their independence from Britain by appealing to the self-evident truth that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Martin Luther King Jr., in his most famous speech, the one that we listened to last episode, said that the architects of our republic when they wrote the words of the Declaration and the Constitution, were signing a promissory note to which all Americans would fall heir. And I brought up the question whether this was true, and in what sense it's true. And this is, to put it mildly, a contested question today. How should we remember 1776 or 1787? And in many ways, how we remember those years and the documents produced in those years depends less on contested facts, although there are some, of course, as contested interpretations of facts, which there always will be, and there are many today. Here's a contested interpretive question. What did they mean when they were writing the Declaration of Independence? That document was the work of a committee, but Thomas Jefferson was its primary draftsman and pro-stylist. He's the one most remembered for the Declaration. Later on, on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration, Jefferson wrote to a friend that the goal of that document and the goal that they had in drafting it was, quote, not to find out new principles or new arguments never before thought of, not merely to say things which had never been said before, but to place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent and to justify ourselves in the independent stand we are compelled to take, neither aiming at originality of principle or sentiment, nor yet copied from any particular and previous writing. It was intended to be an expression of the American mind, and to give to that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. All its authority, Jefferson wrote, rests on the harmonizing sentiments of the day, whether expressed in conversation, in letters, printed essays, or in the elementary books of public right, as Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, and Sidney. And so there's nothing new in the Declaration, Jefferson said. It expressed what had already been affirmed in the public debate that had taken place in the decades prior to independence. And it brought together the ideas found in what Jefferson called the elementary books of public right, the texts people turned to for ideas about political philosophy, Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, and Sidney. But there's a question here that's occupied historians and political theorists ever since. To what extent can we blend together these sources, an ancient Greek political philosopher, an ancient Roman statesman, and two 17th century English Republican theorists? And another question, to what extent did they mean, truly mean, that all men, used generically here in the 18th century to mean all human beings, male and female of any race, were created equal? and endowed by their creator with certain rights that couldn't be alienated. One piece of evidence that's often invoked on both sides of this debate is a deleted section from Thomas Jefferson's original rough draft. As one of the charges against the king, Jefferson had written, quote, He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. 
This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce. And as I said, this is invoked on both sides of an interpretive debate about the relationship between the founding and slavery. On the one hand, it points to a keen awareness of the injustice of slavery, but an awareness that also highlights a deep tension between ideals and reality. And on the other hand, the fact remains that it was removed in the editing process, and it's not found in the final draft of the Declaration. What is in the final draft is a summary of political ideas held in common by American proponents of independence, and a list of charges against the king put forward to justify the case for independence. After its famous affirmation of human equality and natural rights, the Declaration then moves to the question of the Constitution, small-c Constitution, or what it calls political forms. Another truth the colonists affirm is, quote, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that when any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter, to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." And there's a role for prudence in this endeavor. Prudence indeed, the Declaration goes on, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they're accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. And then the Declaration moves to specific charges against the king, The history of the present king of Great Britain, it says, is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Those facts then come in a list of specific allegations or grievances that are constitutional in nature, and they can be grouped here into three broad categories corresponding to three broad governing principles. The first is that the king has denied the right of the people to consent to government through representative legislatures. He refused to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance. He pressured large districts to relinquish the right of representation in the legislature. He called legislative bodies together at unusual, uncomfortable, or distant places. He dissolved representative bodies. He refused to create new ones. He prevented immigration, imposed taxes without consent, suspended legislatures, and ignored repeated petitions for a redress of grievances. Second, he wouldn't allow for a functioning independent judicial power. He refused his assent to laws establishing a judiciary. He made judges dependent on his will alone for their tenure in offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He protected soldiers from punishment through mock trials, and there was no administration of justice. And third, he abused executive power. He erected a multitude of new government offices. He kept standing armies in peacetime. He tried to make the military power superior to the civil power. He courted troops in private homes, abdicated government by declaring the colonists outside of his protection, 
and waged war against the colonists. All of that and more is then put forward as evidence of the justice of their cause, and it also points toward the political form or the constitution of government they'll choose to draft in their states and then later for the nation as a whole. The National Constitution, written 11 years later, establishes in its first three articles a representative legislature, an executive power that's under law with an elected civilian president as commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and a judiciary whose judges are not dependent on the executive for their tenure or their salaries. The document written and proposed to the states for ratification in 1787, however, made no specific mention of natural or unalienable rights. The phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is found in the Declaration, but not in the Constitution. The only right mentioned is in connection with Congress's power to secure the intellectual property rights associated with patents. And the question of slavery, the ultimate denial of individual rights, couldn't entirely be avoided in the Constitution. The text deals with slavery specifically in several places. In Article 1, when determining the apportionment for representation and direct taxes, and then when limiting Congress's power to prohibit the slave trade prior to 1808. In Article 4, in the provision requiring fugitives from labor to be returned. And in Article 5, preventing any future amendments, empowering Congress to interfere with the slave trade prior to 1808. We'll pick up next week with those specific constitutional provisions about slavery in the absence in the original Constitution of any specific protections for individual rights. From there, we'll move to the Bill of Rights, and then to the Reconstruction Amendments, and to what Lincoln would later call our new birth of freedom.